0: Money FM 89.3, best of drive time. In the spotlight on Money FM 89.3. Money FM 89.3. Good afternoon. It is drive time. I'm Elliot Danker. It's time now for In the Spotlight. And today we're putting the law in the spotlight. It is a profession and industry that's constantly evolving, especially in recent years with the rise of technology. Today we're going to discuss the impact of that technology and how it's going to shape the future of legal education. What's it going to look like? On the line with me is Professor David B. Wilkins, Faculty Director, Center on the Legal Profession at Harvard Law School. Professor, good afternoon, how are you?
1: Good afternoon. I'm uh, delighted to talk to you and, and really delighted to be in Singapore. It's one of my favorite places in the world, and I haven't been able to be here for the last couple of years because of the pandemic, so I'm delighted to be back.
0: Well We are very lucky to have you, and it is a great privilege to be able to talk to you about the legal profession. A profession, I would say, it's a bit of a legacy profession, especially when you talk about technology. I suppose, for starters, share with us your thoughts on how recent years have seen the legal industry sort of evolve.
1: Well, as you uh, indicate in your question, uh, law is not exactly uh, typically the most forward-looking of professions. Uh, sometimes I joke that law is the only profession in the world where you can't say anything new until you definitively prove somebody said it before. That's called precedent. And that's our system of law and the common law system in Singapore and in the United States. Having said that, law also has to respond to broader changes in the economy, in politics, in society. And those changes were already going on before 2020, before Mm -hmm. the pandemic, Mm -hmm. but they've been turbocharged in a way by the pandemic.
0: Yeah, that's so true. Actually, a U.S. law firm, uh, Baker Holtester, sort of uh, started the ball rolling with the introduction of an AI lawyer called Ross. Funny thing is, Ross was in this company and this company at that time had 900 lawyers. What are we looking at here when you introduce something like that? Perhaps Ross becoming outsourced to other boutique law firms.
1: So Ross was one of the very first legal tech companies. Although you say Baker at Hosteller was the one to commercialize it, it actually came out of the University of Toronto oh, in Canada. Okay. But as you also suggest... It was a very early version of technology, and it was really backed up in some ways by outsourced lawyers who were real lawyers and real human beings. I think the real question today is whether we're going to see far more advanced technologies, of which ChatGPT is the most famous example – doing the work that used to be done by real lawyers. And that's now becoming much more of a possibility, though we're nowhere near the kind of, you know, robot lawyer future that some people are afraid of.
0: I'm not too sure I would trust the robot lawyer because he might <laughs> not be as creative with language. Although, Professor, with, with you know, y- y- your last answer, how does that affect the role of a CLO? How does that role change, you know, when you consider things like compliance or legal risk management or even data laws for that matter?
1: So I think these are some of the areas you're going to see the biggest impact first. One of the things we did, I'm here for a, a conference which we call uh, The Next Frontier of Lawyering from ESG to CHAT-GPT that we're doing here in conjunction with Singapore Management University and their law school and the Singapore Academy of Law. And one of the things we were focusing on are how – clients, particularly large corporate clients, going to be incorporating these kinds of technologies in different kinds of functions of which, as you say, compliance or contract drafting or contract analytics or a lot of areas of law that are very much amenable to artificial intelligence, machine learning, and other forms of technology.
0: Professor, I did my internship as a paralegal doing medical law contracts. I'm starting to think that paralegals are going to be obsolete. In fact, legal counsel or general counsels might be cut in half. Am I stretching there? (laughs) Well,
1: I will tell you there are a lot of uh, nervous people uh, in the legal industry as a whole. And I'd say paralegals precisely because... Much of what they do is read and review either contracts or basic legal information. That's part of what ChatGPT and other forms of large language model generative AI are proving itself to be very good at doing. Mm -hmm. It's not, however, foolproof. We know that these language models sometimes, in the term of the trade, hallucinate, meaning they make up things that sound very plausible but are not true. And it's because, and here's one critical point for your listeners, these are not legal research tools Mm. or search engines. So in other words, when you were a paralegal, You were a human research tool reading documents or reading laws and summarizing them, but you were reading actual laws here or actual contracts. Here, what these models are doing is simply predicting in an algorithmic fashion, what's the next most likely word that would come? given the previous word. Mm -hmm. And that could be something that might be very true or completely made out of whole cloth.
0: Or as my boss would have said to me, uh, I was a boy seizing an opportunity in life. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Professor, with that in mind, I want to deviate slightly to criminal law, especially when we talk about AIs and, and technology, right? How does this change the role of an expert witness. And I bring this in mind because I used to be a government investigator. I used to be trained in profiling and we were always on standby to provide that expert witness role in court. You look at Capitol Hill and how the FBI used social media. Does this mean one day perhaps the polygraph could be admissible in court with AI?
1: Well, I don't know about the polygraph, <laughs> but I, I do know, first of all, I just want to say you've had a lot of interesting jobs in your <laughs> yes, life. <yeah. laughs> uh, but the second thing I'll say in all seriousness is that in criminal law, these systems are already being used mm. for things like setting bail. In other okay. words, whether when a criminal, uh, when a, when a defendant is arrested for a potential crime, is the person going to be let out? pending trial. And that is often, at least in my system, I'm no expert on yours, a determination of how likely is it that if we let the person out that they will commit another offense or flee and not come to their court hearings. Mm. And there are expert systems that have been built to try to predict whether someone is likely to be a flight risk or a repeat offender uh, if they are let out. Now, these systems are very controversial in the United States because they're based on past data of past defendants. But that past data can itself be inflected with Bias, because if, for example, judges are more likely to give bail determination to, uh, you know, let people out on bail who are white as opposed to black, then that'll get baked into the system and will have a bias system. So. Yes, these systems are being used, but they have to be used very carefully because if you're predicting the future based on the past, the past may itself have things in it that one does not want to replicate in the future.
0: To follow up on that, Professor, and reflecting on school and the future of legal studies or or legal degrees... When I'm studying law, does reading data become part of reading legal terms? Or is it the other way around Re- reading legal terms as part of reading data?
1: I think the answer is both, wow. and we're still figuring this out. So let me just be very clear. Sure. This is a little bit like we're, you know, fixing the airplane in the middle of the flight. Mm. In other words, mm-hmm. no one actually knows where the resting place will be. But I'll say two things that that show uh, the wisdom of both of your points. Okay. One is that lawyers are going to have to be better at understanding and interpreting data because so much what they're going to be asked to do is going to be based on data that they will have to either accept or reject. And that means they need to know more about data. And when I say data, that includes what something like ChatGPT spits out an answer to a legal question because you have to understand something about how ChatGPT works in order to understand whether or not this is an answer you can trust and in what circumstances. On the other hand, legal materials are being digitized and turned into data that then these tools are being used to search and analyze and predict. And one of the things that judges, including a conversation I had with – I was very uh, lucky to have a conversation with the justices of the Supreme Court here – is how they're going to deal with the fact that there are companies out there that are trying to predict their decisions – Based on turning their past decisions and their past analysis into data that then can be analyzed by some of these tools to bake, to, to to form predictive outcomes mm. of what judges will do in the future,
0: Professor. I want to you know as as a faculty director, where we see the kids come in, perhaps where the modules are concerned, is there a need maybe to specialize more in or, or to look at more in ethics, given everything we've discussed or or look at bylaws, AI can't possibly deal with that, right? Although you could argue AI might work around the bylaws. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Well, but I think your point on the emphasis on ethics is Hmm. very well taken because I think not just young law school graduates, but we as a society are going to be faced with some new and quite complex questions about when is it ethical to use these tools? How is it ethical to use them? How do we ensure that the results are ones that conform with our fundamental commitments to fairness, to individual dignity, to the rule of law. Uh, There's no simple answer. In some ways, these tools might increase the access to the law, for example, or access to justice by making it easier for ordinary citizens to gain access to legal knowledge, legal understanding, even basic legal tools okay. without having to go through a lawyer, which is, of course, very expensive. On the other hand, they can also be manipulated in ways that might undermine our basic values. So the, the question of ethics and responsibility for Not just lawyers or judges, but the people who are creating these tools is going to be incredibly more important in the future.
0: Do we prep these young students then, you know, when we're trying to draw the picture of uh, the lawyer of the future is maybe perhaps a a legal design thinker, someone who can best mix both worlds or a legal process analyst or a risk manager or, or some kind of a project, legal project manager in that sense?
1: We're going to need all of the above. In fact, actually, uh, my friend Richard Susskind, who's a very prominent academic in the UK, has written a whole book about how there are going to be these new legal roles, and you've mm. named some of them: legal project manager for ChatGPT. There are going to be people who are called prompt engineers, who know how, who are trained how to ask the right kinds of questions of this AI, because we know that the better the question you ask, the better. The response will be. But it doesn't mean, I don't think, that we should turn lawyers into computer programmers or mm. software engineers yeah. because. There is also going to be an even greater need for human judgment, for values, for ethics of the kind you mentioned before. So I think legal education is going to have to be much more interdisciplinary, meaning we need to at least give students the exposure to these kinds of tools and their use and misuse. But I also think that we're going to have to teach engineers and uh, software yeah. designers and yeah. other people much more about the values and the ethics of creating things. So it's not just creating the coolest new fastest, most uh, imp- uh, impressive AI. It's also understanding the responsibilities of how that AI will be used.
0: Just a very quick final question, Professor, and of course, this is in line with uh, you being in town, wrapping up the Future of Lawyering Conference, organized by SAL and SMU Young Pyonghao School of Law. Your thoughts on where Singapore's at? I think
1: Singapore is a very important point a uh, place to have this discussion and okay. why i'm very anxious uh, i'm very honored to be here because <laughs> because singapore is a place uh, that has been a leader in technology it's also a place where there's been a lot of cooperation between the profession, the academy, the judiciary, the government, and thinking about uh, how to how to use technology. And I think that uh, and the, the young people who I've had a chance to meet here while I've been here have been incredibly impressive. So I think much of the much of what's going to di- drive the dynamics of the world in the coming years. Is is going to happen in this part of the world, not just Singapore, but ASEAN in general. And I'm very uh, happy to be having these
0: discussions here. I've been speaking with Professor David B. Wilkins, who is Faculty Director, Center on the Legal Profession at Harvard Law School. Professor, appreciate your time. Take care and have a safe trip home.
1: Thank you very much. And uh, I really appreciate uh, the time on your show.
0: To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at audio.sg.